Our scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 23. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought, the, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of the, his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants and said, Look, she said to this to them, this, household, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you bought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. I actually want to start out a message this morning sharing with you all something that my wife wrote just last night. Um, she, she shared it with me, a little kind of devotional piece of writing, and... Uh, I said, i got to change my whole intro because this is way better than what I prepared. Uh, vomit is sanctifying. A great opening line, right? Vomit is sanctifying. 
This weekend, we were supposed to volunteer with a youth leadership conference through our denomination. We have a long history with it, and it's dear to my heart. So when one kid puked a few days ago, I was worried. Then they were fine. My hopes rose again. Then a second kid puked. This time I was angry. Was this spiritual warfare? I tried to manipulate God by saying things like, well, if he doesn't puke anymore, we'll still go. I wanted to be there. Beautiful ministry was happening, and I wanted to be a part of it. Then God nudged me, quietly reminding me that my presence does not make or break the success of a ministry. There are good, wise people coming out of the woodwork to help. My presence might be missed, but it would not be needed. I could take a deep breath and say with acceptance and confidence, I need to stay home. So this morning, when a third child sat on my lap, puking into a bucket before laying his head on my chest to rest, I didn't feel indignation anymore. I felt at peace with the task before me, loving on my babies and nursing them back to health. There will always be good, worthy tasks to give your attention to. You might indeed be called to go and do the important work, but if you find yourself annoyed because your children have disrupted your plans, don't forget that motherhood is also important work. I shared this this morning because as we're continuing on in our series in Genesis, we, you know, we've spent the last several uh, few months looking at major figures within uh, this book of origins. And we are spending our last few weeks on the figure of Joseph, a man who has all sorts of unpleasant things happen to him. Yet somehow, just like my wife, he finds blessings in the midst of it. Now, Rudy got us started last week. <clears throat> While I was out sick, he was sharing about Joseph's dreams and his early days as a favored son who uh, received a fancy robe from his father, along with some very jealous brothers as well. And Rudy foreshadowed for us how, although Joseph would go through some incredibly low periods, he also has this redeemed potential in the end. But before we get to that end, Things got worse, right? The brothers get so jealous that they plot to kill Joseph, but then they settle for just selling him into, into slavery instead, and they tell their dad that he died. So at this point, their father Jacob believes that Joseph is dead. <clears throat> In our text this morning, we find Joseph briefly rebounding from that trauma by finding favor with his new master. Potiphar in Egypt. But then he also finds a different kind of favor with Potiphar's wife, and things go south for him again. Uh, I want to make two quick observations from this. One is that Joseph has some pretty bad luck with coats, doesn't he? Uh, he doesn't have an easy job keeping a hold of them, uh, and it seems to get him into some trouble. And I say that in jest, but there is kind of some important parallels there. Because in, in both Genesis 37 and in chapter 39, we see Joseph have this favor. We see something happen with his robe where it's, it's stripped from him. And we see this pain and suffering that he experiences as a result from that. And maybe the other thing we can glean from this as an observation is that favor isn't always a good thing. We, we sometimes want to seek favor in, the, uh, in our lives. We, we enjoy having those temporary blessings, but it doesn't always ultimately end up working out well for us. And so uh, sometimes it just draws unnecessary attention, jealousy, and any number of other problems. Joseph ends up having his fair share of problems, and one of the problems he has is dealing with a uh, false accusation here. 
We should be careful to not to draw here uh, comparisons too quickly to contemporary scenarios with allegations of assault or abuse. Because I've, I've heard some people bring up Joseph's story when uh, um, even talking about or even praying for this or that church leader or politician whom they have uh, already determined must be innocent when an allegation comes up. And so they say he's like a Joseph figure. Uh, but there are some key differences between Joseph's case and many modern-day scenarios, particularly details like power dynamics and uh, who people are likely to assume is telling the truth in this scenario. I'd suggest that Joseph has far less in common with our favorite politicians or leaders than he does with someone like Emmett Till, the 14-year-old African-American kid from Chicago in 1955 who was murdered after allegedly whistling at a white woman in a grocery store in Mississippi. Joseph was an outsider, a minority in a land that was hostile to his people. Even prior to the slavery that we'll see later for the Hebrews in Egypt, those who are native to Egypt seem to have a pretty strong prejudice against Asiatic peoples like the Hebrews or the Canaanites. We know that from some historical studies. We even see it flaring up in Potiphar's wife's speech to the other servants. Look, this Hebrew has come to make sport of us. She is othering Joseph here, right? There's a definite category of who's on the inside and who is on the outside, and she has suspicion of and is playing into that suspicion. She's upset that he rejected her, so she stokes the prejudice that already exists there to her, adva her advantage. He's already come in and taken the job of head servant. Now he's trying to take whatever else he wants, right? And Joseph has zero ability to speak out for himself. There's no hearing. There's no investigation. There's only punishment. And what's interesting here, though, as well, is, is not that Joseph was condemned so easily, but that he wasn't killed on the spot. Potiphar was one of Pharaoh's officials. Joseph was just a foreign slave, servant. So there was no real rules for fair treatment here in this scenario. And the usual response probably would have been fatal. The fact that Potiphar had him imprisoned rather than executed may show that he even then already had some inkling that Joseph was innocent. And yet, this is the outcome that Joseph has. So what are we to make of this text? What are we to, to do with this? What does Joseph's life tell us about faith in the midst of pain, suffering, unjust punishment, betrayal? I, uh, I remember talking with a friend uh, recently who'd gone through a lot of pain in his life, mostly because of what other people had done to him. He was a victim of physical sexual abuse from a young age. Um, he had a string of relationships that all ended with heartache and being taken advantage of. He said he was just hanging on by a thread. And he didn't really know what to do when it came to his faith. His questions were real and legitimate. To quote him, he said, How am I supposed to have faith when everyone keeps failing me? Why would God allow people to do this much wrong to me? If he was actually real and all-powerful, couldn't God just snap his fingers and stop these awful things from happening? I was tempted to go into kind of a theological explanation here and to, to give an, uh, an answer to my friend, but that wouldn't have really made a real difference, right? Because it wasn't a theological problem for my friend. It was an experiential problem. It was what he was experiencing in his life, and he didn't know how to make sense of it. Joseph could have asked those very same questions, right? 
to make a massive understatement, Joseph had a pretty hard life. He went through some very difficult things. Started out kind of cushy with favoritism from his dad, fancy robe. But that ends up making his brothers so jealous that they respond in some really traumatic ways. They throw him into a pit. They talk about killing him. They sell him into slavery. Things briefly take an upturn for the better. He gets this favor from his new master, Potiphar. But then he's assaulted and then falsely accused and then thrown into prison for the very thing that happened to him. Joseph will later look back on all of this and see how God all along had used those trials for good. If he hadn't been sold into slavery by his brothers, he might never have made it to Egypt. If he hadn't been thrown into prison, he would not later have had the opportunity to interpret a cupbearer's dream and in turn be brought before the Pharaoh to interpret Pharaoh's troubling dreams. And if it wasn't for that event, Joseph wouldn't have been exalted to Pharaoh's right hand and given the ability to save his whole family from the effects of a famine and fulfill the dream that he had back in chapter 37. It's what enables Joseph to utter his famous line at the end of Genesis to his brothers in Egypt. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Of course, hindsight's twenty-twenty, right? is what Gene talks about, is the clarity of the rearview mirror, right? When we look at things uh, in reverse, it's often easier to identify that. But Joseph didn't have any of that at the time, at this moment. When he is in Potiphar's house, when he is in prison later, he doesn't know what, is, what all is going to happen. What he does know is he's had a dream, he does know that he has seen some amount of blessing even while he's undergoing trial. He is in some way experiencing the Lord with him in that. He has faith. So here's what I want us to reflect on this morning. What does faith look like when we suffer despite doing good? Or even because we do good? How are we supposed to respond? I have two suggestions for us. The first is to trust that God is at work. The first thing we can draw from Joseph's example here is that we can always look uh, for where God is moving, even in trial, and trust that he is at work for our good. Our text this morning goes out of the way to note twice just how much Joseph prospered, even in lowly situations, because it says the Lord was with him through it all. He moves up quickly through the ranks of a servant in Potiphar's household because God is with him in everything he does, and people notice. Later, even in prison, he gets put in charge of all of the affairs in the prison by the prison warden because God is with him in everything he does. It might seem like small comfort when thinking about living as a slave or a prisoner, but Joseph seems to make the best of it. Joseph's story reinforces for us that even while God may not prevent bad situations from happening, he will be with us through it all. And that God can use the unexpected to bring good out of a bad situation. The second, less direct takeaway that we can get from this is practicing gratitude and worship. Uh, perhaps you've read the autobiography of Corrie ten Boom detailing her imprisonment in a concentration camp with her sister Betsy during World War II. 
Not long into their imprisonment, they were disgusted to find that their barracks were filled with fleas. Corey began to complain, but Betsy insisted that they instead give thanks. She quoted 1 Thessalonians 5.18, And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. With some persuasion, Corey finally joined her sister in thanking God for the fleas. Several months later, the two sisters expressed their surprise that the camp guards had never come back to their barracks to disrupt or prevent the evening Bible studies they held for their fellow prisoners. Turned out that the guards wanted nothing to do with the fleas there. And it was then that Corey realized the very fleas which she had so despised had actually been a God-sent protection from the cruel guards. There are situations which seem to obviously warrant anxiety, despair, or even a lack of faith. Completely justifiable to have an emotional response and questions to those events. And I firmly believe that God grieves with us when we go through those, those situations of pain. So the biblical instruction to practice gratitude isn't about just giving lip service to God when we don't really mean it, just to appease God's ego. God is deserving of our worship, but God isn't dependent upon it. The practice of gratitude is for us. It does something to us in our spirits. Pessimism and despair is a poison for the soul, but gratitude can be a wellspring of life. Now, it never says, I say this is an indirect lesson, because it never says in our text explicitly that Joseph practiced gratitude for the Lord here. But I can't imagine a scenario where he gave himself up to despair in what happened and accomplished everything that he did. Recognizing God's presence and practicing gratitude, it can give us the emotional and the spiritual strength to fight off despair. It can help us to, to draw deeper in communion with Christ in the midst of our struggle. Now, Joseph's uh, life story is inspiring in its own right. Many people love the story of Joseph, but it's even more so when we realize the ways in which it foreshadows Jesus. He was also a favored son, rejected by his own people, to the grief of the father, often falsely accused, rejected despite his stellar character, humbled, but then exalted to the right hand, uh, Joseph of Pharaoh, uh, uh, Jesus to the right hand of the Father. They both work for the good of all people. Joseph provides for grain that feeds many in the famine. Jesus is the bread of life. They both extend grace and reconcile with those who intended them harm. So in this way, not only was Joseph honored by Egypt and by all those in his family who had turned their backs on him, He's also given a special honor in Scripture as one who prefigures Jesus in that way and Christ's salvation for all people. Joseph is a type of the image of a suffering servant who provides salvation for others. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says that following him means we can expect the same kinds of experiences to happen to us. He says, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when we suffer, we're doing what's right. We're in good company. 
the same sort of thing that happened to Joseph, to the prophets, and ultimately Jesus. So hardship isn't an occasion for despair or defense. It's an occasion for worship. That doesn't answer all of our questions here. Namely, how are we supposed to respond to others, especially those who wrong us? And uh, God willing, next week we will look more in depth at that as we take a look at Joseph's reunion with his brothers in Egypt and all that happens there. But for now, I think it suffices to answer that question by pointing again to Jesus, who tells us uh, also in the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We know that there is brokenness all around us. Some of it is bound to touch our lives, no matter how righteously we are living. Sometimes it can be particularly because of our faith and our, our attempts at righteousness in our life. Satan wants to bring all spiritual forces to bear to harm those who seek to do God's will. You can think about it even practically that those who revel in their brokenness, they could be made jealous or, or even convicted just by noticing people who are living a life with God, a, a life that they maybe can tell and sense in some way is what they ought to be doing and they do not want to do that. And shine a, a light on what they know to be wrong. And so they try to bring you down. Or they may even act out in violence like Joseph's brothers or covet intimacy with you inappropriately like Potiphar's wife and lash out in anger when it doesn't go their way. We don't have to go about correcting other people's behavior. You know that judgment and vengeance is in God's hands. We just need to worry about us. So, favor isn't always good. Most of the time it's fleeting. Sometimes it draws unwanted attention. But we can know that God's presence sustains us in both good times and bad. So may we seek God's face, worship Jesus, and pray for those who would do us harm. And maybe God will use your small steps of humility and faithfulness to change the world. I want to close us with a, uh, a poem uh, it was originally written by an author named uh, Kent Keith, who, and it was said to be displayed in an edited version by Mother Teresa in her home for children in Calcutta, India. Uh, it was originally called The Paradoxical Commandments, and I'm going to read the edited version that's often attributed to Mother Teresa. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. 
May we remember that. Lord, we thank you that you bring good out of circumstances that seem irredeemable to us. But that you are the author of life. It is because of you that we know what good is. That you are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who has again and again and again and again entered into human history in your creation to reconcile us, to, to woo us to yourselves, and that you put on flesh to enter into this space just that you might show us to the fullest extent how much you love us. You went to the utter depths to display that love. And you have won the victory, Lord. We know that evil, death, sickness, pain, suffering, that their days are numbered. That you will come back and return and put all things back to rights. We put our hope and our trust in you. Say, Lord, come quickly. Would you sustain us through the hard days now? Put our hope in you. Amen.